We have been uh, starting a series in walking through the book of Nehemiah. As we, he was going through a building project that God had laid on his heart even as we are. I believe the scripture has much to say to us, to teach us ways it can shape us and lead us as we press into and fulfill and uh, walk through this whole process together. This morning we're in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 to 20. As we prepare, as the building in a sense goes up out on the property and we prepare, as we will step forward into what God has for us, that we would prepare to arise and build. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 9, hear the Word of God. And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and I gave the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, uh, his servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and I was there for three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, And I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up into the night by valley, and I inspected the wall. And I turned back, and I entered the valley gate, and so I returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, and the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, You see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sinbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us. They despised us and they said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we His servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning as your people. We have gathered because you call us to worship. And even as we draw near to you, we long that you would draw near to us. Father, we come to sit at your feet and to learn of you. Father, speak. This is your word. Speak it afresh into the hearts and lives of your people. Capture our imagination afresh that we might see You as You are in Your power and glory. And that we too may rise up and build to follow You as You build Your church and build Your kingdom. That we might be faithful and useful servants 
to a living God. In whose name we pray. Amen. Broken down walls. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem. I love verse 20 as he reaches the end of this. And for me, that's the whole sermon. That's where where we'll start and that's where we'll go. The God of heaven will make us prosper. If there will be any prosperity, if there will be any success, this is not a success gospel. It's simply saying that where there is prosperity, where there is success, it is the God of heaven who brings it about. God is a sovereign one. And it says, and the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise, and we will build. What a beautiful and powerful vision! There is faith in it. There's confidence in it. There is a strength and a determination in it. There is a purpose and a will. And it's not just their will, but it it is the will of God. God will prosper us. God is at work. And that's why we will arise and build. That's why we believe that He will prosper it. Because in in the end, it's not our work. It's His work. God is at work. He's doing something. And so we will arise and be a part of it. How did Nehemiah and the Israelites cultivate such confident hearts? Such ready wills to arise and work? Well, I'm praying that over the next six months as our building goes up out on the new property, as we drive by it, I try to go by once a week and just kind of see what, what's happened since last week. And it's moving quickly. As we prepare for ministry in a new location, I long for this statement to describe us. That you would in some ways even write this on your heart and memorize it, and that you would speak it from your own heart, that that you would catch this vision yourself, that the God of heaven will prosper us, and we, His servants, will arise and build and be a part of what God is doing. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. We saw this in the last couple of weeks back in verse 8 and 9. Well, no, in the end of chapter 1, sorry. Um, Now, I was cupbearer to the king is how the first chapter ends. He's in charge of the king's food and drink and safety. Right? As cupbearer to the king, he didn't just hand him the cup, but he followed that cup from its procurement, the wine, all the way to the king's table and his food. So he lives in the king's palace. He has a certain amount of life of, of influence and comfort and ease. It's good to live in the palace of the king. When I say the king, I mean Artaxerxes, emperor of Persia, the greatest empire on the earth at that time. So he lives literally uh, drinking from a golden goblet in the presence of this king. This is who Nehemiah is. He is definitely a servant, an Israelite in exile. He is an enslaved minority, but he's a privileged slave. If you're going to be a slave, if you're going to be a servant, that is the best guy in the world to serve. Right? So Nehemiah is, is both of these things, but he, as he stands in this place, he's also a faithful Israelite. We, as, he, as he unfolds and writes, in a sense, his little autobiography here, a little bit about himself and this work of God in his life, we get to know a man of God. A man who knows and loves the God of Israel. A man who is a man of prayer and it saturates his 
work in his thinking, a man with a very high sense of God's sovereignty in his work, in his life, and in his people's life. Saturates his thinking. So Nehemiah, as he serves in the court, he gets some news. His brother returns from a trip with some others, and the news comes that Jerusalem lies still in ruins. The gates are still broken down and, and burned and lying there. The walls fall right where they tumbled when the city was taken hundreds of years ago. And so the, the city lies in disgrace and vulnerability. And Nehemiah is broken by the news. After months of fasting and praying, God opens a door. He's in the presence of the king. And the king asks him, what's going on? And then he asks him, what can I do? What do you want? God opens a door. Nehemiah throws caution to the wind. And he steps through. And he tells him that he wants to return to the place of his ancestors, the city of his ancestors, and to see it rebuilt. And we're told that God gives Nehemiah favor in the eyes of this Persian king. God gives him favor. And so he's granted permission and he's given letters and he's given a military escort to take him on his way for its safety. And that's where our story picks up. The way has been opened. The resources have been provided. And he says at the end of verse 8, and he says, it's all because the good hand of my God was upon me. The good hand of my God was upon me. And so in verse 9, the journey begins. It says, I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. That's the river Euphrates. He started in the capital of Persia, modern day Iran, and traveled up through Iraq, which is uh, old Babylon, and crosses the river Euphrates into modern and ancient Syria, which is where he bumps into these uh, officials on their way in. Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah. He bumps into these guys. They're going to be players in the future of this story. We're going to bump into them throughout. They're, the, uh, they're going to be trouble along the way. You see it from the first time that they bump into them. The trouble, the attitude that these guys have. But they appear to be local officials. Sanballat is probably a governor in Syria. And so as he passes through and he gives these letters of passage... He doesn't tell them exactly what he's up to. We find out at the end of this little section we read that they don't know exactly what he's up to. All they know is he is coming from the capital and he's going to Jerusalem and he has the welfare of God's people in mind. And they don't like it. So he passes through past the governors of Syria with a military escort. They cross the Euphrates. And he comes to Jerusalem. Verses 11 to 15, it says, I went to Jerusalem, finally arrives. And he's there for three days. He doesn't do much but to get to know the people and the lay of the land. And he gets himself acclimated, rests up from his journey. But then we're told after the third day, verse 12, I arose in the night, I and a few men that I've come to trust with me or I brought with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do. And he goes out for a secret inspection of the walls and the gates, of the damage, of the project that's in front of them. It's a massive project. Jerusalem is a city of at least a mile to two miles in circumference. You just think about walls that are three feet thick, three to four feet thick at the base, 20 feet high. The gates that would take to do this, running for miles 
around a city. It's a huge project. This is not, he didn't, he didn't give up to come for a two-week vacation to see something done. He, he came here to take on a massive endeavor. And so he goes out to, to get a sense of the scope of the work with a few trusted men. From, from what it tells us and where he went naming the gates and such, you know, the valley gate and the dragon spring, it appears that he inspected the southern portion of the walls. He didn't go the whole circumference. He import, you know, looks at the southern portion of the walls and gets a sense of the damage. You know, it points, the damage is so bad it says it's impassable. He has to dismount to get an image of him. He says, my horse can't make it. He got off and clambered over the rocks himself to, to get a sense of what was needed. And he's there for several days getting the lay of the land, inspecting the walls, counting the costs. He doesn't tell anyone. Not the officials. Not the Jews who he says in verse 16 who are going to do the work. They're the ones who are going to do the work. He hadn't even told them. So he's climbed around and he's figured it out. He didn't want to tell anyone until he was ready. Timing is important. It's always been important. Jesus told people not to reveal what he was up to. He would heal somebody, he would do a work in their life, and then he would tell them, don't tell anybody. And why would he tell them not to tell anybody? I mean, the point of proclamation will come. You will go and make disciples and tell everybody on the face of the planet, every creature under heaven, that day's coming. But early on, he didn't, he didn't want to face that opposition too soon. He had a plan. He had a timetable. It was going somewhere. And he didn't want to reveal what he was up to too soon. So in verses 17 and 18, we see that he's prayed, he has surveyed, he has strategized, and then when the time was right, he casts the vision. And he calls the people to participation. He said to them, you see the trouble we're in. You live in this city. You see the walls and the gates. You know how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are destroyed. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer. And I told them about the hand of my God that had been on me. Right? He gives them a, he told them how he came to be there. How God had placed him in, in, the, in the service of the king. And how the king, who no servant talks to the king and tells him what he wants. I mean, there is death to be even sad in the king's presence. And how God opened the door, gave him favor in the eyes of the king that the king asked and cared. And not only so, but granted everything that he wanted. And not only did he get get Nehemiah to Jerusalem, but he gave him all the resources he needed from the king's own forest to rebuild and to do what was necessary. He told them how the hand of God had been on him all of this way. So that they would have a sense that this isn't Nehemiah's crazy scheme. You know, this isn't some crazy endeavor we're going to go after. God is doing something. And when God is at work, you know, our job is to get on board. Our job is to get in His wake, so to speak. You know, as He's pressing ahead to get in His wake and to serve and enter into what God is doing. And that's what He calls them to. I told them of the hand of my God, how He had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken. You know that saying how the, the, hand, the heart of the king is in the hand of God to turn it whichever way He wills? Case in point. Right? Artaxerxes, king of the world. His heart is in the hand 
of God to turn whichever way He wills. And so he casts this vision of how God is at work. And so they said, let us rise up and build. How can I not be about God's business? What God is doing. How can I not enter in? And so they strengthen their hands for the good work. And so 20, he says, I replied to the naysayers, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we will rise up and build. Get out of our way. Right? This is essentially what he said. Right? Step aside, boys. This doesn't have anything to do with you. Governor of Syria, what do you got to do with Jerusalem? Um, God is at work. And you will not stand in His way. Oh, for such a heart. The sense of God's sovereignty. The sense of vision of what God is doing. The confidence. The prepared will to step in and to be a part of it. It's a beautiful and powerful thing. And that's where I want to go with the rest of it. Just that sense of God's sovereign. The vision for the task that unfolds. And the prepared hearts for action. Wills that are ready to move. That sense of God's sovereignty which we read starts in verse 8 where He says, And the King granted me what I asked because the hand, the good hand of my God was upon me. In verse 10, when it goes down, it says that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. In verse 11 and 12, and he goes on, as he got to Jerusalem, I rose in the night, and I didn't tell anyone what my God had put into my heart. And then when he finally cast the vision to them, I told them all of the hand of my God, how He had been upon me, and the ways He had given me favor, and how He has worked already. And then it's saturated at the end of what God is going to do. My hand, my God will make it proud. Do you see just in this whole thing from His journey from the King's presence to where He's standing there casting vision and trying to rouse God's people to action that it is saturated with a sense of God's sovereignty. God is a God who has purpose in the world. God is at work. He cares about the welfare of His people. He's building a kingdom. It was true in the Old Testament in a geographic sense. It is true in the New Testament in that every tribe, nation, language, and tongue under the heaven will be called forth, plundered from a kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. He is building. Jesus says, I will build My church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. He is building. He is at work. This vision changes everything everything for Nehemiah. It shapes his whole life, this sense that it's way bigger than me. And I want to be a part of that. All the things that keep me so distracted and busy in this world and in this life, they pull me away. God has intentions. God has purposes. Do you believe that He has intentions for Hickson, Tennessee? Do you believe that He reigns over the circle of the earth? That He's a God of the nations. That His kingdom will be from every nation, tribe, and language, and tongue. Are there any corner of the universe that He doesn't say that it's mine? Right? Is he, does, do we fit into that? Oh, to have a vision that's so much bigger. That God is at work in Hickson. That He's at work in 
our church, through our church. And part of our job is to say, what is God doing so that I can be a part of it? I want to work with Him. 1 Corinthians 3.9 Paul says an amazing thing as he talks about the ministry of kingdom building, church building, gospel proclamation. And as he's engaged in it, and he says this, we are God's fellow workers. That God brings us into the task. He doesn't do it without us out there and apart from us. He does it with us and through us. Not because He has to, not because He needs us, but He does. It is through the foolishness of what is preached that men are saved. That the Gospel is the power of God for the salvation of anyone who will believe. We hold this treasure in jars of clay. But He's deposited it and He has given us a ministry and a message. And He has involved us. This sense of God's sovereignty should capture our imaginations. When I say capture our imagination, some people think if you use your imagination, you're thinking of fanciful things. You know, you're daydreaming about things that aren't real. But that's not what the imagination... The imagination can do that. You can use your imagination to sit and daydream about unicorns, and they're not real. But you could also use your imagination to daydream about your absent spouse. And to picture their face and delight in the sense of being with them again. You can use it to visualize the sunrise and the beauty of it and the serenity of the beach. You know, your happy place. You know, but we use our imagination not just for unreal, fanciful things, but we imagine real things. Right? I imagine my family and what they're doing in New Jersey. And I remember my home there. And I remember what they're doing. And I, you know, our imaginations, and I tell you this, our imaginations should be used and should be captured by things that are the most real. But too often, we give our imaginations to things that aren't real. Like what? Well, like your anxieties and your fears. Because as often or not, your anxieties and your fears are never realized in reality. We spend an awful lot of time and energy and mental space worrying about things that never happen. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. It has enough trouble of its own. Right? Your imagination should be captured with what? This image of a father who, who governs his world and who cares for his creations and not only the birds of the field, but you. This should capture your imagination. I have a father who loves me and cares for me and, and is looking out for me. Not to imagine all my worst fears. And so our imagination should be captured with the sense of God's sovereignty and who he is. It got Nehemiah, you can just see, he just oozes confidence. Because it is, it is something that lives inside and brings light to his soul and hope to his eyes and purpose to his hands and to his life. And I believe what captures our imagination will in many ways govern how you think and how you feel and how you live your life and the choices you make. And so we must, this is why the Word of Christ should dwell in us richly. And so it is what governs us This almighty world-creating, kingdom-building God is on the move. He's on the move in Nehemiah's life in very personal ways, even as He is at move in your life in very personal ways, that the good work that He has begun in you, He will carry on to completion till the day of Christ. Right? That He is ever faithful to you and that He is doing something there. But even bigger than that, you, even as He does that, He, he scoops you into a family, into a, a church and a people, the body of Christ. And he, and he 
brings you into His kingdom building and we are going somewhere. There's this beautiful sweep of history that you and I are caught up in because history is His story and it is His work. He talks in verse 12 about what God had put in my heart to do. Does He do that? Does God put things in our heart? Does He lay things on our hearts? We read through Old Testament and New Testament and it seems as clear to me as day that He does. We may have to have some humility about discerning what that is. But I do believe that God lays things on our hearts and He leads us. Paul spoke of it. Many of the other disciples spoke of it. Old Testament and New Testament, we see men who it seemed that God, you know, and Nehemiah here doesn't appear to be one of the prophets who's having some kind of ecstatic vision or a dream or even anything else. And if he does, he certainly speaks of it in a purely humble way that says, this is something God has laid upon my heart to do. He believed with all of his heart, this is God's thing. I'm not following my own dreams and ambitions here. And so He has the grace to rise above. See, when you believe that, when you believe that God has laid something on your heart or on our hearts, it, it, it brings something in, this confidence that's not in ourselves. It's in a God who's doing something. It gives us the grace to rise above our fear and our anxiety, to rise above the confusion and the anger that might otherwise be there, to rise above our selfishness and our self-protection. Just like Nehemiah, how easy it would be. He had a life of comfort. Why do I want to get on a horse or a donkey and ride halfway across the world, crossing one of the major rivers of the world. Those things, that river is not easy to cross in ancient of days. It's a, it's a boat crossing through these provinces to go to Jerusalem where in some ways I'm unknown and to take on some huge task when I'm living in the lap of luxury. And many of us, we, you know, this is the thing that we struggle with as Americans. You know, it is this living in the lap of luxury and yet having this grand vision of what God is doing. And how is it that we can in some ways disentangle ourselves from our comfort and our own pursuit of our own kingdom and to enter into what God is doing. It's a challenge for every one of us. Nehemiah uprooted his life. He sacrificed much. He took risks because he had a strong sense that God was doing something and that he had laid it on his heart to be a part of it. See, a temptation in a story like this too is to glorify Nehemiah. What a great guy. He's a man of character, a man of vision, a man of accomplishments, man of the hour. And in some ways, he is all those things. But if, but if we end up glorifying Nehemiah for being those things, we, we miss the whole thrust of Scripture. Because it's not Nehemiah that is glorified in this story. It is his God. His God who is sovereign and behind him. The God who is glorious and lays things on men's hearts and moves them. The God who gives them the grace and gives them favor in the eyes of the powers of this world so that they can go about his business. The God who stirs up his people to action. The God of heaven who will make them prosper. So we, his servants might rise up to build. It is the God who is the hero of this story. Nehemiah's God. And His great... I don't know if you're going to honor Nehemiah for anything. It is for this. It is for being a man of prayer. 
And by being a man of prayer, a man who stayed close to God, then he became a man of vision of God's sovereignty and sensitive to the voice of God, the leading of God, and, and having a will shaped and ready to do His will. All of that is grace. That is God's grace in us. That is how He shapes us. And so, our longing ought to be, as Jesus said, abide in Me. Stick close to Me. Abide in Me in prayer. Know Me. Love Me. Walk with Me. And You will bear much fruit. Apart from Me, apart from abiding, apart from My grace flowing into your life like the vine into the branch, you will do nothing. You will do nothing. Do you not believe? We must abide. His God is such a strong sense of His sovereignty, permeating. It's one of the hallmarks of Christian maturity. It's a huge view of God that changes everything. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. That's Christian maturity. And it is by the grace of God. One, I'm living close to that grace and it is flowing into my life and it is making a difference. It is not in vain. But it is by the grace of God that I am by what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. He is using me. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them. All the other, in a sense, apostles. So it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Oh, that sense that is such the hallmark of a heart that knows and loves and in Christian maturity is to rise to that place. of, And it's not us rising. It's us rising to the place where we know this grace of God that is with me. Sense of God's sovereignty and what God had placed upon His heart to do. You know, it was that sense when your leadership came to you over a year ago and said, we believe that God wants us to sell and move. That we have maxed out this property. We've maxed out what we can do here. We love it here. We've been here for 50 years. We've built on this site three times. We have memories here. We have, there are people who have been here since its founding. There are so many things about this place that we love, but we came with a sense saying, you know what? We have that piece of property out there. We had to make a decision. We believe, we, we need to make a decision. We need either, either our future is here or our future is there. We either need to sell, if it's here, fine, let's sell that property, take the proceeds, and start tearing down wings and building them up. You know, tearing down playgrounds and paving them so we can expand our parking, move our playground down below, and let's start investing, trying to make this property to suit our growing needs in a future. If our future is here, let's do that. And we said, and the other option is, if our future is out there where we have 25 acres in the middle of a growing community on a major thoroughfare, then, then we need to sell here and go there and start investing ourselves. And almost to a man and woman, almost like 98% said, go. I, I have to tell you, I mean, I've told you this before, and, and, and part of why I want to do this in the fall is to renew our vision and what's, what God is doing, is to say, I never in my wildest dreams believed 98% of you would say go. That we would be that unified. That we would have that common of a sense 
of what God wanted us to do. And then no sooner had we made that decision. I can't tell you in the last year the number of people that have marveled at the fact that this building is already sold. Right? That no sooner, literally within two weeks of making the decision and you voting and saying go, did we have someone saying we'd like to buy. We didn't even look for them. We didn't ask for them. We didn't market for them. And, and we are already sold and our moorings here have been cut. All I can say is like when I said when he was trying to cast vision to them and I told them how the hand of my God had been upon me for good over this, this whole process. And that captured their imagination to say, let's do it. God has opened the door and given us favor and sold our church and raised much of the money and so we stand poised. And they had this vision. And I want, to see, I want us to see very clearly the vision that Nehemiah, in a sense, has that overrides us as we have. Because the vision for the task was not walls and gates. When he came and, and spoke of his vision in general to the powers that be, it is back in verse 10 when he says, someone had come to seek the welfare of the people. Right? And we, for us, that is exactly the right place for it to be. The walls and the gates are a means to an end, which is the welfare of God's people. The growing of His kingdom and the strength of His work. It's important to understand that Nehemiah's vision was not about strong walls or impressive gates, but about people. I was told early when I was going to seminary and thinking about ministry, and I had a mentor who would tell me again and again, and I strive to remember it, that ministry is people. Because it's so easy to get caught up into the programs, or into the building, or into the stuff, and we're going to run our programs. Ministry is people. Ministry is down in the messy corners of our lives. And it's about people coming to know Christ and to share in His grace. And the reality was simply this. Jerusalem would not grow. It would not be strong or healthy. Its people would not be safe. It could not prosper until the walls were rebuilt. It was a large city. It was unprotected. It was vulnerable. And people, it was still sparsely populated because people were afraid to rebuild in such a vulnerable place. We know this, Nehemiah chapter 7, later in the story, he says it this way, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. And no houses had been rebuilt. The city wouldn't grow. The people wouldn't populate it. The people would not be strong. It could not be done until the walls and the gates were rebuilt so that the people could rebuild their lives. So that God's kingdom and people could thrive. So ministry could go forward. Nehemiah could clearly see that the way forward was to build. It was a means to an end. But it was a necessary means to an end. God had given them a vision, a picture of the future of God's people lifted out of their derision and their shame and their vulnerability and, and, and cared for. And so this is a vision I think that we need to have as we think about going out there. I drive by that property, uh, like I say, about once a week and I look out there and the whole thing is a vision to me. I mean, the building is going up and it's one thing and you're like, wow, like it's just 
to see it actually happening. You know, it's not the first time this project has been started. You know, and, it, and we've had that property for 15 years. And to drive by and see the building go up. But also to see the property and to see the pavilion and the field. And to see this space in the midst of a community. A community that's growing in thousands of cars. They say tens of thousands of cars drive by there every week. You know, and I drive by and I just... It's not, it's not the building, but you're looking at the picture, thinking of the vision of what... The ways that God can use us, the opportunities for ministry that, that are hard to imagine even at this point. And so our hearts need to be prepared for action. So many different ways I think that our hearts do need to be prepared. I want them to be, verse 20, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we His servants will arise and build. As the building comes up and as we move into the spring, things are, gonna get, things are getting real. You know, and as we, as we start packing here, there's a certain point in the spring where we're going to have to say, yeah, no more use of the kitchen. We've got to pack it. <laughs> you know, so at some point, in the, you know, it starts to be real, this shift, and also the, the, the thinking of what are ministry on the ground out there come next summer and next fall and what we're going to do and to start believing in terms of how God wants to use us and how we will rise up when the building is done, how we will believe that God will make us to prosper and we will rise up. And build. Because He has laid it upon our hearts to do so. I'm praying that He will capture our hearts with this vision. And I would say that that praying is a great part of the work. I I am blessed that the women, and I'll give them a plug this morning, there are still women who meet every Tuesday morning at 8.30 and walk the neighborhood praying. You know, I envision them kind of like the Israelites marching around the walls of Jericho. Like, march ladies, Pray. You know, because and the walls will come down, right? When, when you know, I know it's only a, a t- type, but I think it's a type that as we pray, as we obey God's will, as we march, when He says march, and when we pray, God does bring walls down. Every every stronghold that stands against Christ, He says, will be brought down. And as those ladies proud, encourage you, eight thirty out at the property. If you're not doing it, and and you would catch a vision to go and spend these months praying. Packer says this, William Temple said somewhere that whereas we think the real work is our activity, to which prayer is just an adjunct, a a help, our praying is the real work. And our activity is an index of how well we have done it, the work of praying. For real prayer, prayer that is that centers on hallowing God's name and doing His will has among other effects a reflex on us who pray. It purifies our hearts. It purges our attitudes and our motives. It melts down all of our self-centeredness and our self-sufficiency and our self-reliance that as fallen creatures we bring to the table. And it programs us. It is it transforms us to work humbly in a God-honoring, God-fearing, God-dependent way. In other words, prayer tunes and prepares our hearts to rise up and work. Am I seeking, these are questions for you as we close today, am I seeking to be ready for the challenge that ahead? And I would say over these months, at least for me it's been this way, it's driven me to my knees to, to say, am I spiritually ready? Like there are spiritual challenges in front of us. There are spiritual challenges we're facing right now. 
Am I, am I, is my heart in the right place? Am I right with God? Is my heart, am I, is my life heart pure? Am I obedient? Am I walking close with Him like I do believe we want to be? And I would just encourage you in preparation, you know, is to cultivate, look to your heart. He says, guard the heart, it is the wellspring of life. That we would tune our hearts over the coming months to purify ourselves of that which is not meant to be there and to make ourselves prepared and ready as instruments in the Redeemer's hand to accomplish the good purposes He's laid on our hearts. Would you prepare yourselves? Would you look to your own soul in the months ahead? Draw near to Christ. The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we as servants will rise and work. Father in heaven, may it be so. Oh, give us such a vision. Give us such a heart. Give us such a passion. Give us such a confidence. Give us such a will. Oh, work within us that we would be a people ready. That we would be a people willing. That we would be a people set free from ourselves and the motives that pollute our hearts. That we would abide in You and in Christ close enough that that the life that is Yours would flow into ours in such a way that we would be changed. Oh God, capture our imaginations that You might capture our whole lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.